It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. On the show today, we're going to be speaking with fine arts curator Aaron Joyce from the Heard Museum in Phoenix, Arizona, telling us about the current exhibition of Indigenous artists, including some from Canada. Also on the show, Deputy Director of Airbnb, Nathan Rotman, and the demand for authentic Indigenous tourism experiences across the country. But first, I'm pleased to welcome to the show Craig Thompson. Craig uh, is a seasoned media professional with more than 25 years in content creation, production, and management in the Canadian and international and television industry. Uh, His talent as a storyteller has taken him into the front lines of conflict, given him a vantage point on the world's most incredible locations, and allowed him to meet and interact with some very notable personalities. People such as Whoopi Goldberg, Stephen Hawking, Alex Trebek, Alan Thicke, Regis Philbin, and uh, Jason Alexander, William Shatner, uh, Chris Hadfield, and the list keeps going on and on. So it's a great pleasure to welcome uh, Craig Thompson to the show. And um, also his background as a journalist and foreign correspondent uh, covering important events such as the conflict in Northern Ireland and the end of the Cold War created the foundation for Ballinran Entertainment, which is named for his family's ancestral village in Northern Ireland. Uh, Established in 1995, Ballinran Entertainment is a film and television production studio based in the arts and culture hub of Stratford, Ontario. And for the last two decades, Ballinran has created a wealth of lifestyle documentary and factual entertainment programming for television audiences all over the world. So, Craig, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me, David. But today, of course, we're talking to you about uh, a newly established Southwestern Ontario Film Alliance, which uh, you and I have spoken about. And that has been formed to lobby provincial and federal governments to provide funding to boast film and television production in the region, uh, both in terms of encouraging productions to film here, but also to create training and mentorship opportunities for emerging filmmakers already working here. Specifically, you and I spoke about uh, people of Indigenous ancestry. That's correct. Well, we believe that the province Ontario should province of Ontario should have a level playing field for the film and television production industry, which is worth between two and three billion dollars, creating forty to fifty thousand jobs a year. So right now, the industry, as you know, David, is centered in the greater Toronto area and Hamilton, and there's been a recent boost in production in northern Ontario where they have the Northern Ontario Heritage Fund film incentive. But for several reasons, not just the pandemic, uh, it's these regions are uh, need to be spread out. The, the production industry has to be spread out across uh, the province, including southwestern Ontario, um, both for you know health and safety reasons, because Northern Ontario and the GTA and Hamilton will very soon be fully booked. There's an incredible pent-up demand because the industry has been shut down for such a long time Mm. and the U.S. isn't opening up as quickly. So Vancouver is busy, Toronto is busy, North Bay, Sudbury is busy. Yet in southwestern Ontario, we've got great locations. We've got uh, acting talent, production talent, and a lot of technical talent. And our argument is let's do the same thing in southwestern Ontario that they were able to do in northern Ontario where they partner with emerging filmmakers, 
students, post-secondary institutions, and uh, production companies to create an industry that is a long-term economic sustainability in the area. And uh, I've been working on a few indigenous productions, and one of the challenges that we face in the industry is there's no network, there's no contact, there's there's no nurturing or mentorship really that we can find in southwestern Ontario to bring uh, young and emerging uh, content creators from indigenous communities into the production industry because there are stories that aren't being told. So we've established the Southwestern Ontario Film Alliance and we've got representation uh, from both Métis and First Nations on our sort of founding board. And our goal is to try to get some training programs and reach out to uh, Southwestern Ontario's Indigenous communities to say, okay, let's get this thing going and find the people who want to get into the industry. Yeah, right. Now, and one, one of those stories that uh, you and I were speaking about, and it's something I think you, you may have already got in the works, is the 25 years uh, after uh, Ipperwash. Um, that's, that's just one example of one of the stories that, that could be told. That's right. We weren't actually able to get that going in time for the 25th anniversary, mm. uh, simply because um, in order to get a, a production funded, you need to have uh, an indigenous production company with a track mm. record mm. and you have to have a whole mentorship and training program for indigenous youth. Mm. Well, there are quite a few indigenous production companies spread out across Canada, but they're also busy with their own projects that mm. they don't have the interest or the time to pursue everything that's available. So what we need to do here in Southwestern Ontario is to establish a collective or a group that can set up an indigenous uh, production company that can tap into the money and learn from experienced filmmakers how to create a, a great content. And so how is that going for you? Well, we've just set up the organization a few weeks ago with the support of the Ontario government, Ontario Creates, and we actually launched our website yesterday. So the, the mm. timing of our interview is good. Mm. And the uh, website address is SOFA, as in sitting on the sofa, S-O-F-A-Film.ca. And it stands for the Southwestern Ontario Film Alliance. Right. Um, and and so uh, I know you've been looking and trying to attract people. Um, how has that been going? Have you had any luck? Well, interviews like this with you, David, are part of that outreach. outreach. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're really at the early stages. We have mm -hmm. found uh, a number of people who are interested uh, in, in telling stories, some directors that you've introduced us to. Mm -hmm. So we're at the very early stages, but we are going to do a call out uh, once we get uh, things organized to the various communities across southwestern Ontario to say, hey, we're starting this initiative. Um, put your name in the hat, uh, send us your name and your interests, and then we're going to build up a network of people and, and say to the funding agencies, look, we've got 50 people here who want to learn about editing, storytelling, cameras, technology. So that's where we're at right now. And like you just said, it's not just about finding, uh, say, uh, um, the producers or the directors. It, it's all manner of, of people that you're looking for, whether it be in front of and or behind uh, music people, uh, the, the whole gamut you're, of people you're looking for. 
yeah, it's a whole whole creative industry. And what we're trying to do is create a sustainable industry that creates jobs and gives voice to stories that aren't being told. For example, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, indigenous youth who are going to post-secondary institutions like Fanshawe or Conestoga or elsewhere to learn about media or broadcasting mm. or any creative field. The question is, you know, you just can't ask Fanshawe, hey, give us the list of your all of your indigenous <laughs> youth. It's, they Price. can't release private information. <laughs> so you have to be able to figure out, okay, how can we create a network to find out who is thinking about going to college, who is already at college, who's graduated and maybe can't find a job. So that's really what it's all about. Mm. Uh, um, that sounds uh, like a great, of course, idea. Uh, the the one for uh, it's unfortunate you missed the, the 25 year uh, anniversary of Ipperwash, but of course there's that story could always be told at a later date. Um, what do you hope ultimately that this will will bring and and do? How do you see this looking down the road? Uh, there's two outcomes that I'd like to see. One is a solid homegrown film, television, and digital media industry in southwestern Ontario. The second is outside productions, recognizing that we have the talent, the locations, and the resources to welcome them here to film their productions for more than a day here, a day there. So part of that would be to establish a production hub, kind of a, a studio facility infrastructure where outside productions that can get the gear and all the facilities they need to do long-term production shooting, like three or four weeks uh, in southwestern Ontario. So those are the two, uh, two objectives that we have. Now, one person that you, you are working with, and he may be on your board, is uh, Tony White. I understand he's a Métis-based actor in your area out in Stratford. Yeah, there's quite a few uh, Indigenous and First Nations and Métis uh, creative people in our area. Tony is one of them. He's done a lot of acting in theatre and on movies and, and TV. The other is Graham Green, who lives in mm. Stratford as well, and he's a very well-known, but he's not currently involved in organization yet although i aspire to have him <laughs> on our right. masthead but uh, yeah so tony uh is somebody i've worked with quite a bit and uh we're sort of asking him and uh to help us with outreach and anybody else who can uh, to introduce us to uh people in the in the various uh, uh indigenous communities in mm. southwestern ontario which of course is defined you know, geographically by the government of Ontario is anything from um, Tobermory, you know, down mm. to Brantford and over to Windsor and Sarnia. Mm. Okay, that's a that's a great area. That then it, I'm glad you you let us know about that. That covers quite a bit and takes in quite a few uh, communities, uh, indigenous communities within that area as well. Absolutely. So if you if you draw a line uh, between Milton and Guelph, it's basically the start of Wellington County and mm -hmm. everything west. So right. you know, there's uh, quite a few. You know, chief among them would be the Six Nations, but uh, right. uh, but there's also quite a few around London and Sarnia and. Right. up near Kettle and Stony Points, and yeah, there's a lot of communities. So, uh, Craig, just wondering, would that include people, uh, Indigenous people, that maybe uh, live outside of the area, have come from, say, a, a, a different province, a different community outside of Ontario, but have relocated here? If they're relocated here, would that also include them? Oh, yeah, there's no restriction on where you've come from. 
Okay. Um, uh, obviously, there are also those who are from here who have moved elsewhere. So mm. they would be also like there's quite a yeah. few people from uh, Six Nations who've gone on right. to Toronto or Ottawa sure. uh, to pursue their careers because the lack of jobs uh, in mm -hmm. media production in the region is is a challenge. So you go to right. the larger centers to find work. Uh, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, on the show with me is Craig Thompson, the man behind Ball and Ran Entertainment. And Craig is an, the executive producer, producer and a director, as well as a writer. His ability to motivate teams of creative people, manage complex projects, navigate international partnerships and negotiate uh, complicated financing deals has resulted in film and television productions that have earned numerous industry awards and nominations including the Canadian Screen Awards Gemini Awards and the Irish Film and Television Academy Awards Ball and Rand currently boasts five films currently streaming worldwide on Netflix and Craig is our, my guest here on Moment of Truth today uh, Craig the, the other thing about this you talk about a hub um, and a center for the hub. And I believe you, you have uh, somewhere in the Stratford area that will, will allow you to establish that. Well, we haven't uh, found the actual physical space yet. We've got yeah. the concept and mm. we're working with a number of industry partners like ACTRA, IATSE, uh, Sheridan's Screen Industries Research and Training Center to establish a, a physical space where we can do both the training and production. And we're in the process of putting together financing and partners for that. This is a really exciting idea, of course. It's uh, And there are no shortage of Indigenous stories to tell out there. As you pointed out earlier, there are uh, quite a few Indigenous people and, and production companies that are out there. They're doing their own thing. They're busy. Um, but with the number of uh, communities uh, and, and stories to be told... Uh, there's, there's a lot is what I'm trying to say that could, could come forward and, and you could work with here. Unlimited, unlimited, whether you're talking about documentary or drama or children's programming or animation, there are an unlimited number of stories. People just need the tools and the skills to be able to tell them. And, you know, we're recognizing now how more important it is. And so there's a lot of opportunities that are opening up in the recent months to provide funding uh, for these kinds of content programs and the training involved. So I think we're all recognizing uh, in all cultures that everybody needs to be able to have a voice. So that's what we're trying to do is say, hey, there are some great stories out there. We can't tell the stories ourselves, but we can help you tell them. And that's the purpose of the Southwestern Ontario Film Alliance is to give voice to the stories from diverse communities uh, who don't have that uh, access to skills and technology. Mm. Uh, Craig, the other thing, of course, is COVID-19 has hampered everyone to some degree. I, I was going to say that when you mentioned like Fanshawe and other uh, colleges and universities that are, that are training people in, in the industry, um, you, you could have, I guess, in the past maybe gone to make presentations uh, in classrooms and those kind of things, uh, you know, to try and, and drum up some, some interest from some of those people. Um, is that still an option or, or how have things changed that might limit your ability to, to tap into these areas like, uh, like colleges that are, that are in, in the industry and training people? 
Well, I don't think it's limited our ability to provide training. It's just shifted the platform and the way we do it. So you're right, going into schools at this moment in time is not sensible or not feasible, particularly when a lot of those educational institutions have moved to online learning. Mm. So our, um, our plan is to offer online workshops and um, courses. And uh, when we're in production on location, there's a lot of protocols in place that we'd be following. So the key would be to do micro training, like small workshops with numbers of people, you know, a handful, like between three and five, not large groups. So I think we can work around that. But uh, we do hope, all of us hope that this pandemic will be easing up uh, in the not too distant future. So we're planning not just for the short term, we're planning for the medium and long term. Sure. Uh, now, you mentioned uh, the Southern Ontario uh, Film Alliance website, sofa-film.ca. Is that the best place for people to try and get more information or contact you? That's correct. So there's a form on that website that uh, says, are you interested in finding out more? Tell us a bit about your skills and your areas of interest. And we're gradually building up a database of people and uh, to find out what they're interested in so we can build up a directory. Okay. Uh, is there anything else you can think of that we haven't touched on that you want to mention uh, just before we fin finish up? Everybody has a story. People think, oh, my life doesn't matter. Or I'm not really interesting. But every person has a story. So when we're looking at stories, we have to sort of imagine how an outsider looking in on your life or your story might perceive your story. So that's the thing. It doesn't have to be a blockbuster movie. It can be a simple story. So anybody listening to your program with a connection to Southwestern Ontario Indigenous communities and stories should keep their eyes and ears open and uh, realize that, hey, we're in a new age of content. There's an insatiable appetite for content on many platforms. So there's room, more room for stories than ever before. So that's my, my one message. And the second thing is we need people to help tell them. Right. <laughs> and uh, specifically, we've been talking about trying to find uh, Indigenous people in those areas so that you can uh, start to train them, start to, to get those stories out there and partnership uh, so that, uh, the, that you can access the funding, as you mentioned. Um, I think there's, what, about a 55% uh, so that those projects can be uh, accessed financially? Yeah, it's 51%. But yeah, every project that is a Indigenous content and is getting funding has to be owned and controlled by Indigenous content creators. They can certainly have experienced mentors and executive producers, but the actual direction of the creative and the, the storytelling has to be uh, in the Indigenous voice. Mm. Well, Craig, I, I can't think of a better person that people could uh, could want to access, uh, someone like yourself, with the, the, the years of experience and the, the seasoned uh, uh, kind of experience that you have uh, from looking at the kind of people you have worked with uh, certainly would be uh, uh, something for people to, to definitely want to take advantage of. And it's, it's great that you're, you're doing this and reaching out to want to try and get this, this going. So uh, all the best to you in the future on this and, and all your other projects that you'll be doing. Thanks, David. We look forward to keeping in touch with you and uh, having you involved in uh, whatever way you have time to devote to this because I think uh, it's a collaborative effort. 
Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Craig, once again, and uh, and all the best. Take care. Thank you. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Craig Thompson, executive producer, producer, director, and writer, and he is the man behind Ballinran Entertainment, uh, based out of Stratford, Ontario. Pleasure talking with him today about the Southern Ontario uh, Film Alliance, which has just been established. And as he pointed out, you can get a hold of them at sofa-film.ca if you want to find out more about how you might be able to get involved. There, There's that form online you can go to and fill out. I'd like to thank Craig once again. We'll be right back with Nathan Rotman, the Deputy Director of Airbnb Canada, who is teaming up with the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. Don't go away. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. It is our pleasure to welcome to the show Nathan Rotman. He is the uh, Deputy Director... Uh, for Canada of Airbnb. Uh, Nathan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me today. Well, it's a pleasure. You know, uh, I have to admit, uh, the reason we're, we're, we're talking to you today is about your, uh, your new partnership that you've got going with Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, uh, which is, is kind of cool and very exciting. Um, I guess the first question is, though, for, for at this time, is, of course, how, how are things going and, and how do people uh, go about doing any kind of traveling or, or staying these days with, with the situation that COVID has brought on? No, oh, it's a, a totally fair question, David. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, obviously this spring, uh, when COVID really hit, travel basically stopped. Mm. Um, and at one point, you know, I think uh, we read somewhere, I read somewhere that you know, estimated one third of the world's population was under lockdown. But obviously, like that desire to travel remains for people. People want mm-hmm. to travel; they want to get away. And as the summer, uh, you know, uh, you know, as as the summer began, we began to see some encouraging signs, and a lot of people started to book, you know, nearby stays. We we call it uh, people traveling, you know, within 500 kilometers of their home, uh, trying to stay somewhere remote or rural where they could travel safely, get away from the home they've been, you know, mostly locked up and working from, or uh, or. Um, uh, or, you know, even worse, potentially, you know, not working uh, during mm. during the pandemic at its worst. And so right. people started to book, uh, you know, stays in, in really in rural and remote uh, locations across Canada. We were happy to see on July 8th more than um, uh, the, the guests booked more than a million nights worth of future stays at Airbnb listings around the world. That was the first time that happened in, in months. Um, and so, you know, over the course of the summer, things have, have started to pick up a little bit. We've put in place some, some significant cleaning protocols, and we obviously share with our guests uh, the local restrictions so that they know what is safe to do and what the government is expecting of them when they're traveling. Mm. You know, I guess it's interesting on many fronts when we think about COVID-19, not only from uh, the perspective of the traveler, but also those the hosts. Uh, it, it's a it's a learning experience first of all for everyone. But I guess you have some. Uh, you, you will want some specific. Uh, I guess almost guarantees of the, the the hosts that they're going to make sure they follow through and and set up the 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 environment that is going to be safe for for those people coming to stay at their places. Absolutely, we we did a few things around that uh, early on, and so um, we we've put in place a new enhanced cleaning protocol for hosts so that they can follow basically a step-by-step set of instructions, uh, how to clean their home with the best guidance from the CDC in the United States, as well as a consultant we hired, the former 
uh, Surgeon General of the United States, uh, Dr. Murthy, who's been advising us on those, on those protocols. In addition, we also announced a global ban on parties and events at listings, mm. including a cap on occupancy. Some mm. uh, provinces have placed a, a lower cap, and we've we've informed our hosts and our guests of those of those restrictions. Um, but we think that, like you know, a ban on parties, uh, you know, and, and events, especially at the moment, was a, a necessary step to ensure that people are staying safe this summer. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, you know, you, you talked about a local travel sort of and, and not going as far because of the restrictions of COVID-19. I, I, that's one of the things I found really interesting from going to your site is that I had no idea there were so many interesting places within 500 kilometers, um, you know, just within southern Ontario, which is where we're located, where I'm located. So uh, I, I thought, wow, uh, I would never have guessed that that this kind of stuff is out there. Yeah, it's actually, it's really kind of fun. Um, my partner and I, we decided we wanted, we had a plan to go west this summer uh, mm. and uh, travel around Western Canada. We ended up uh, moving, going east instead because it's a little easier to drive. And mm. we stayed in some really, really unique locations right. uh, through rural Quebec out to the coast. Um, mm. And one of the things that we found that people are really searching for right now is something more unique um, and something more remote. And so uh, cabins accounted for 10% of all searches, more than double the search mm. for, you know, a, an apartment or a condominium. Mm. Um, there, there's a, a number of like unique listings on the Airbnb platform um, uh, that include everything from a treehouse to a farm <laughs> to tiny houses uh, to yeah. boats. Um, and I saw a boat on the platform that I really wanted to book uh, out in um, uh, Chelsea, not far from Ottawa and in mm. the Gatineau area of Quebec. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, my partner and I, we stayed in a, a tree house, uh, right on the Saguenay river, uh, in mm-hmm. kind of a tent tree house bubble thing, uh, mm-hmm. that was really fun and totally unique. Um, and in a place that we never would have stayed if it wasn't kind of on our way to the gas bay and, you know, was where we were enticed by really by the listing and then mm-hmm. by staying there, you know, ate at some local restaurants and experienced a, a little bit of Quebec culture we wouldn't have seen or experienced mm-hmm. otherwise. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the treehouse. That caught me. And and uh, you're right. There are some really, really unique spaces uh, that would be a very cool to uh, to take the family to or or just pass through because there are places that you just wouldn't normally. Uh, well, even it wouldn't even dawned on me if I hadn't gone to your site and seen them. I would never have known that that people were that. uh, uh um uh, interesting that they're doing this kind of thing out there, you know, so it's great that, that all those opportunities are, are out there for people. But you mentioned, you know, unique experiences. And, and I guess that is is part of what's going on with, with uh, experiences that people are looking for these days. It, it's been around for a while about that unique experience or an authentic experience. And the Indigenous experience is one of those things that, that people, uh, I think, are, are really turning to these days. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's really why we wanted to partner with ITAC. You know, just before I jump into that, like on the experiences side, mm-hmm. we've, we've had, you know, in-person experiences available on the platform for some time. And it's really, mm-hmm. you know, it's made both for travelers and for locals. Uh, I had booked prior to the pandemic, sadly didn't get to participate because it was obviously uh, closed down when the, uh, when the pandemic uh, hit. Um, but I had booked uh, even just here in Toronto where I live, um, an oyster tasting uh, session. Uh, at a restaurant where the the local chef was basically, you know, uh, sampling oysters from across Canada. It sounded like a fun thing to do to learn about, you know, about Canadian food a little bit. 
and something different to do on a Saturday afternoon. So these are both for travelers and for uh, and for locals who are just looking for something a little bit mm. different. During mm-hmm. the pandemic, we opened online experiences, um, and those range uh, much more broadly. And you can really experience culture from around the world uh, and, and really participate in some really fun, both kind of like cultural experiences, cooking experiences. Um, we're currently doing some some great stuff with Olympic uh, with Olympians who obviously mm-hmm. lost their chance to to, to um, uh, compete this year mm-hmm. uh, at the Tokyo Games. Um, and Olympians, you know, have sometimes can struggle to make ends meet. So, so we've we've opened up the, the platform to to a good number of them, including quite a few Canadians, where you can you know learn to train with uh, an Olympic bobsledder or you know uh, learn to ski with someone. And it's some some really neat uh, online experiences that you can participate in as well. Hmm. Uh, yeah, that's really cool. It's great that you guys uh, are, are taking uh, that uh, to that to that level and and including people uh, to be able to do those kind of things. Um, so when did the idea, uh, come about to start, uh, including the Indigenous Tourism Association? So, uh, they actually, you know, we had been chatting for some time, um, you know, myself and one of, uh, one of their uh, vice presidents there. And, and, you know, it, it, you know, when we, we, we've been looking for opportunities to basically work with destination marketing organizations around Canada and around the world, we're just, uh, kind of a global initiative. To, to support economic recovery. Uh, obviously the tourism industry during the pandemic really changed and, and we don't know for how long that's gonna change, how, mm-hmm. you know, how long people are gonna be uh, sure. you know, uncomfortable necessarily traveling in, in, in the ways that they were prior to the pandemic. And so we were looking for ways that we could support you know, the, the economic recovery. And so in talking to, uh, to ITAC, we thought, you know, what a great example of a, a national destination marketing organization where we can really have, uh, where we can support their uh, member businesses, and uh, and and really uh, meet matches well with our economic empowerment agenda, which really includes like aggressive goals to help uh, communities to to leverage their businesses, their homes to generate income all across Canada. Uh, and so we're really excited to to have, to have launched this. It, it's uh, you know it's it's obviously a, a longer partnership than just you know something that launched. In a day, and so we are we're, we're in kind of active discussions about uh, all kinds of neat initiatives that we can uh, participate in together. Yeah, w- when you decide to partner up with someone like that, with uh, the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, and you, you talked about, uh, you know, you get into discussions about what you can work towards, what you start to do, and it's a longer term partnership uh, and relationship that you want to develop and you want to look look towards. Um, I'm just wondering what what the the uh the the conversations are kind of like because i'm sure there's like you said there there's it's an education and it would be an education for people that want to host that are thinking of opening up their home or opening up uh an attraction that you, that wants to be part of airbnb so uh an airbnb so um can you can you take us through a little bit of that what what does that look like as you start to to formulate and start to to get into these kind of things yeah, for sure. You know, it's interesting. Part of this came about really from uh, really like looking around on our platform. And prior to the pandemic, there were quite a few Indigenous tourist experiences on the platform. Uh, everything from uh, food experiences uh, to uh, cultural and historic experiences. Um, and and there, it really ran the gamut. 
those are not all available. Obviously, at the moment, some people moved on uh, when the pandemic closed things down. And so we're really working with ITAC to, to basically promote to their members uh, new ways of marketing their businesses. So um, in our press release and on the on the um, uh, the landing page, the, the ITAC Airbnb landing page, uh, we talk about Candice, who's a, an experiences host in Vancouver. Right. She runs uh, one or two, I think she has two experiences on the platform uh, where she, she does uh, tours of Stanley Park and talks about the history and the culture of the, the communities who live there. And, and it's you know a fascinating and really interesting experience for people to get to learn when they're either a tourist or they live in Vancouver and are interested in learning more about the history of the area. Um, and so we're working with ITAC really to, to bring more people like Candace who run small businesses all across Canada to be able to better market their, uh, their businesses really to travelers uh, local or from far away. Our guest here on Moment of Truth is Nathan Rotman. He is the Deputy Director uh, for Canada for Airbnb. It's a pleasure to have him on. We're talking about the uh, about Airbnb, but also about uh, their new uh, partnership with the Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. And, um, y- you know, I guess, Nathan, the other thing that comes to mind is is that I, that I didn't realize and uh, that I now am starting to see is, you know, we talked about COVID-19 and how that's sort of changing things. We talked about the unknowns about COVID-19. We don't know how long this is going to go on for. But it, in the broader sense of, of travel, uh, I must admit that I thought of Airbnb as just a place, you know, to find that you can stay. But in fact, it, it's really much more than that. What you are, you guys are really going into is about travel. It's not just about stay. It's about the experience. And, and it's about, uh, it's about the, the entire experience of, of traveling and, and taking in as much as you can once you get to that place you're going to stay at. Yeah, you couldn't have said it better. Uh, I couldn't have said it better myself. Really, we want to be an end-to-end travel platform where you can book unique listings in communities where you can really, uh, really feel like you're part of the community. Uh, staying in a, you know, a loft in downtown Montreal or a cabin in, in, in rural Ontario. And then looking for interesting things to do, uh, we want to be able to provide that entire end-to-end uh, opportunity for people. Was that? Was, do you think that was how Airbnb started out as as sort of that that travel idea, or was it just like a place to stay? Yeah, I, actually, the, the story is fantastic about our, our three founders. Um, you know, three guys living in uh, in California who who uh, recognized an opportunity and rented out uh, three air mattresses on their kitchen floor uh, during a conference when all the hotels were booked in town and they found three people who wanted to book the air mattresses on the floor. Uh, that's actually where the air, air bed and breakfast the name of the company um, uh, came from. And, uh, and it really, you know, it came from that. Uh, and in addition, the interesting thing is, is the company really started to do well in the last economic crisis back in 2008. Mm. Um, when people were looking for opportunities to say like, wow, I, I need to make, I need to make ends meet. I need, I need to earn some additional income uh, or income at all uh, in tough times. And so, you know, our platform is proud, you know, the individuals who are sharing their home, their bedroom, or, you know, teaching a, a cooking class or a history lesson or how to train a dog on their, on their experience. Those are the people who are, who are earning income on our platform. And we're, we're really like proud to have this economic empowerment agenda that, that helps people make ends meet in tough times. 
Mm. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to go visit somewhere. I'm going to be staying at a hotel. Uh, you kind of know and what you expect to find uh, when you go and travel uh, and you're going to stay at a hotel. Uh, but what? how does that change when you say, well, I'm going to stay at somebody's house. I don't know who this is. You know, uh, there, there are questions that people have naturally when, when they think about those kind of things. How do you guys combat and, and think about and, and answer those questions for people? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, so it, I, I, I've stayed in many, many Airbnbs all around, uh, all around the world, really. And I often start by having a discussion with the host. Uh, mm-hmm. You look, you know, on our platform, you basically look at, at a number of pictures and read the description of the site. Uh, sometimes you're staying in a home and you never actually meet the host. Other mm-hmm. times you stay in a home and, and you're staying with the host and their family. Uh, and it can be a really neat experience. Uh, my first time in San Francisco, I stayed with an, an elderly Italian couple. Uh, they were they were absolutely lovely. I was just starting with the company, and uh, and it was really fun to to experience uh, you know basically boarding with this with this wonderful couple who had coffee ready in the morning, uh, and it was it was really fun. But you know, I generally start when I'm booking uh, by having a discussion with the host because uh, there's a back and forth kind of chat feature mm-hmm. on the site. They often mm-hmm. want to know why you're traveling. Um, you know, to, to where, whichever destination you're going to, and you can ask them questions. Uh, certainly this summer when I was traveling in Quebec, I asked it whether they were adhering to the cleaning protocols. And I wanted to know a little bit more about what they were, what they were doing. Uh, yeah. and it gave me confidence as I was, you know, traveling, trying to, you know, traveling safely in my car across the province, uh, over the course of the summer. Mm. I guess that goes both ways, doesn't it? Uh, if you're going into someone's home, they have questions for you as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, we have very strict rules around, obviously, around discrimination and, and right. on our platform. Sure. Um, but obviously, you know, a host wants to know, especially in their home, you know, why are you traveling? Are you coming with sure. your family? Are you coming with a dog? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those are all filters that are on the site where you can find pet friendly listings uh, or, uh, or, or or business travel listings where sometimes you don't you don't really want to meet the host. You just want right. to, you know, walk in, put your bag down, go to work, you know, mm-hmm. you'll leave the next day. So there are right. different kinds of listings for, for really different kinds of travelers. It, you said something, though, very interesting about talking to the host or meeting the host or going to a home and the host is there, uh, especially, I guess, in, in, in somewhere that, that is perhaps far away or somewhere unique that you're not, you don't know much about. That really brings in the local uh, element for you, doesn't it? You're getting now into the experience that you wouldn't necessarily get if you were at a hotel. That's right. That's right. And it's a great way to learn really like very local, local culture in, in just mm. kind of really fun ways where you can actually ask, you know, what's the best local coffee shop I can start my day at or where can I work between meetings? There are so many neat opportunities when you're when you're traveling like a local. And that's really part of our our mission is to make you feel like you belong in a community. I remember mm. my first actually my first time on in an Airbnb was actually in Paris a couple of years back. And, uh, and it was a really fantastic experience because, you know, you, you, you wake up in this kind of beautiful Parisian apartment above a main street and you feel, you really feel like you belong there in, uh, mm. in a really wonderful way. Um, yeah. So a very different way of traveling than in, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want to put down the hotels and traveling, it's, you know, no. people travel in many ways. Sure. But it's a different kind of travel. Uh, speaking of that, um, what, what have you learned since uh, you started the partnership uh, with Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, um, what has what has uh, piqued your interest, or what has, what has surprised you, or what have you learned from this experience so far that you didn't uh, know? 
I'm really impressed by the breadth of the different kinds of uh, member businesses on on it, that are, that are involved with IPAC. Uh, there are so many really amazing opportunities to to learn more about Canada, to experience different cultures, um, to to do some really fantastic kind of adventure and uh, uh, fishing experiences throughout the country. I'm just really I'm I'm excited to actually try some out as 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 I get some more time off and, and opportunities to travel around the country again. Because um, mm. there, there's just a fantastic opportunity to really experience uh, all that our country has to offer um, by by you know engaging with different communities that you that you don't know as well as your own. And uh, and so you know I'm I'm excited to see where this goes. Uh, certainly, um, one of my colleagues has taken uh, Candace's uh, um, experience in Vancouver before and speaks incredibly highly of it. Um, and, and you know it, those are. Those are the kinds of, uh, you know, reviews that the people then, you know, take and, and, and go right. and experience more of. So right. you know, I'm excited to see how much we're able to, uh, you know, support uh, each other, uh, us and ITAC, as we as we try to onboard more of their members uh, to market them, uh, both through our site, as well as just from those who are traveling and visiting uh, different locations, looking for things to do or looking for interesting places to stay. Right. Uh, Nathan, anything we haven't touched on in terms of uh, either Airbnb and or the indigenous uh, partnership that that uh, you've you've developed uh, that that you like to mention that we haven't touched on? Uh, no, I think that's uh, you know it's a great opportunity to to share some of our mission, and you know we're looking forward to continuing to work with them and uh, and others as we uh, as we all work together to to reopen the economy and rebuild it safely, uh, and uh, you know put folks back to work around the country. You know. Uh, just before we go, one last question. It comes back to COVID-19. What do you think might be a positive outcome from this in terms of your industry and and what this can help uh, help in the future in terms of this the 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 kind of um, industry that you're involved with? Uh, you know, I think the real positive is people really getting to know their backyards better. Um, you know, I went up camping last weekend, in fact. Uh, you know, to to part of Northern Ontario I hadn't been to before, and I think people are you know as they're trying to leave their homes safely and 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 you know look for 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 new experiences when they can't travel or you know fulfill what they had planned for the summer that they're that people are having a great opportunity to really get to know their backyard in ways like you were say, suggesting earlier in ways that they hadn't before, um, and and there's so much to discover you know right here in Ontario or or wherever people live. Um, to uh, to discover around our province and, and to enjoy. Mm. All right. Nicely said. We'll leave it there. Nathan, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you and best of luck with uh, both Airbnb and the new relationship with Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me today. All right. Take care. That's Nathan Rotman. He is the Deputy Director for Canada for Airbnb. That is this part of the program. Uh, but please don't go away. And thank you for listening because we're going to have more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. It's a pleasure to welcome to our show Erin Joyce. She is the Fine Arts Curator at the Heard Museum in Phoenix, Arizona. We've caught up with her in California today, and it's a pleasure to have her on the show and to talk about the uh, upcoming, well, it's actually running right now, uh, the current uh, museum show that they have on. Erin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. The Heard Museum, uh, based in, in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, has quite a, a really interesting history. 
um, uh, you know, in terms of, of not its founders, but also mm-hmm. what it represents currently and, and what it, it chooses to focus on. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, the museum was founded in 1929 uh, uh, by uh, the Hurd family, by May Bartlett Hurd and, and Dwight Hurd. Um, and it has, you know, we've just celebrated our, our 90-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are a museum that focuses on um, the visual culture and, and art of Indigenous um, North America, mostly within the United States, um, but we do have some work in our collection from around the globe. Um, but it's been, you know, like I said, 90 years of that evolution. And um, over the last, I'd say, you know, 30 to 40 years, really championing um, contemporary voices within the Indigenous art community, um, from biennials that were launched in the 70s. Um, and invitationals uh, with different indigenous artists, indigenous curators, um, and really bringing that uh, first person voice of an indigenous experience uh, to the Phoenix community. Uh, so the herd has really become, you know, one of those institutions that um, has sort of represented those communities and worked with those communities. Um, but just like any institution, there are uh, ways in which it hasn't always gotten it right. And, you know, where I think all museums are really having to look at their histories and look at their current moment um, and how do we, we sort of move forward and sort of decolonize these, you know, sort of very colonial spaces that museums are. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the, the focus, focusing in on, on Indigenous art? How did that come about? Um, so the, uh, the herds were originally from uh, the Midwest and moved out to Phoenix um, in the early 1900s and began collecting. Um, it was really a museum that was born out of just their personal collection um, and the, the actually was uh, opened in December of 1929. And unfortunately, uh, Mae Bartlett's husband uh, died uh, mm. very uh, briefly before the, the opening. Um, so just shy of being able to see it open. Um, and it's evolved over time, but it was really s- sort of founded based on the works that they had collected from um, sort of even contemporary artists of that time, um, artists mm-hmm. like Kabodi, um, you know, and moving on forward uh, to, to sort of the American Indian fine art movement um, that was happening in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. But it was really born out of their personal collection and wanting a place to showcase it and have public access to uh, be able to see it. Yeah, and then after her uh, passing, I think it went through another transformation of some kind. Yes, um, you know, just as many museums do, you know, so many museums are founded on those sort of um, uh, some donor or some big collector's collection and, and they, you know, create the space for it to be seen. And when that person or that family is no longer uh, involved, which, you know, they, they obviously aren't now, um, it does go through a different evolution. And museums had many different leaders um, over its 90-year history um, and how it's evolved um, through that time. Yeah, uh, 90 years, uh, that's wonderful to, to hear about that, that it's been around that long. Now, uh, Larger Than Memory opened uh, beginning of September. Yes. And uh, continues on until, I believe, January of 2021. Mm-hmm. 
And it looks like it's quite an extensive uh, uh, showcase uh, of Indigenous artists involved with this larger than memory exhibition. Yes, um, but 24 artists working across uh, the US and Canada um, and representing different stages in their careers, um, different modalities, uh, different uh, sort of visual practice. Uh, we have an artist who is 26 years old and we have an artist, who, you know, sort of spanning all the way up to 80. Um, mm. So it's, you know, also a very intergenerational uh, exhibition. And and what was the idea behind this, this ex- exhibition of Larger Than Memory? What what was the idea to, to bring this all together? Um, well, so uh, my my role at the museum, is, as you shared, is fine arts curator, and I focus as a scholar on contemporary work. Um, and I was brought to the museum uh, three years ago, actually, it'll be three years next month, um, mm. and you know, sort of charged with uh, bringing more contemporary work to the exhibition or to the uh, museum through exhibition. And, um, you know, so we started thinking about uh, the year 2020 and what is, you know, obviously we didn't envision it going the way it has, um, Mm. but, you know, just thinking about like that sort of monumental or momentous number and that that moment and also hitting our our 90 year uh, anniversary as an institution and where are we going? You know, and we started thinking about this idea of instead of looking 90 years backward, looking, you know, 90 years forward, where do we see this museum going? What sort of stories are we going to be sharing? Who's sharing those stories? Um, You know, so it really was born out of this desire to um, show work by contemporary Indigenous artists and show um, the breadth and diversity of those artists, the ways in which they work, the conversations that they're having. Um, You know, and I think it's super important for for all museums to start showing more contemporary indigenous work uh, because I feel as though, and I think many of my my peers and many artists also feel that if you're not sharing those contemporary stories and if you're not allowing for those narratives to take place and that work to be shown and you're only prioritizing historic material, you're really exacerbating erasure. Um, You're only showing work through a very fixed lens of existence through a historiographic um, space instead of a contemporary one. Uh, So the show really tackles a lot of pressing issues that indigenous communities are facing, as well as that we're facing as a global population, things like the climate crisis, things Mm. like institutional racism, things like, gender-based or sexually-based violence, you know, all of these themes are expressed in the exhibition uh, that I think people are really engaging with and these artists are tackling them in such uh, profound and poetic ways um, that I think our audience can find different ways to enter those conversations. Aaron, you know, as you say, it was pushed back the opening of this because of COVID-19. Um, how how has the museum uh, altered, if at all, how it's presenting things in, in, in the manner of uh, COVID-19? Is it moving in terms of any way to, uh, to an online form for presentations at all? We have. Um, so in terms of um, the ways in which people engage with the exhibition itself, um, we are sort of sharing some of it online, um, especially through more of our social media channels. So we are... Um, sort of shifting more of the programmatic side of how we activate exhibitions to things like Zoom. We'll be having, um, so for the opening, you know, we obviously couldn't have a big opening like Mm. we would normally and, you know, a celebration and all that. 
Um, so the way we approached that was we had some of the artists uh, who felt comfortable uh, traveling to the museum. Uh, we sort of filmed them in a sort of digital Zoom um, hybrid where they were in front of their work discussing it, discussing um, their thoughts on the exhibition as a whole. Uh, we'll be doing that with a couple more artists throughout uh, the run of the show. Um, we're also working on a, a digital panel discussion with some of the artists. And we'll probably also have some sort of hybrid uh, performances. We have at the museum, a, uh, we also host the World Championship Hoop Dance. So we have this huge mm. sort of outdoor amphitheater um, in the front of the museum. So we're probably going to be doing some activation of that in a sort of socially distanced limited capacity uh, for some of the artists to perform um, because a lot of these artists are transdisciplinary and have um, mm -hmm. both performance art and a visual art component to their practice. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, we may be doing some sort of hybrid where it'll be online, but also, you know, sort of limited capacity of in-person attendance. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, you have this, uh, this hoop dance uh, competition. Are there other live sort of um, uh, ev events that, that, that the museum puts on throughout the year in, in, in similar capacity? Yes. Uh, so hoop is a, a big one, um, you know, and we're not at the stage where we even know if we can safely have that because right. uh, it's in February um, every year. Uh, so hoop is a big one. We also have um, one of the largest uh, markets and fairs. So we have usually about 600 artists come um, and, you know, they present their work. There's a, ju a juried competition with other indigenous artists um, and folks who judge the work, um, much like they have in Santa Fe. We're not as, as big as Santa Fe, but huh. it's, a, it's a big event. Um, right. And so that, again, we're sort of looking at, you know, is that going to happen? Is there going to be some sort of hybrid digital slash in-person model? Um, you know, I'm not directly involved in, in, in those events production, but those are our, our big ones. Well, that sounds great, and, and the museum sounds wonderful. You know, I was I was in uh, Phoenix uh, a few years ago on a holiday with my family. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish I'd have known at that point. I would have uh, tried to make it down there to the to the Heard Museum. I'll definitely have to do that next time I get down there. It sounds oh, like absolutely. a wonderful place to visit. Oh, we'd love for you to visit, and um, you know, just also in terms of um, the the ways in which the museum has changed. Uh, during uh, this public health crisis, um, mm. we have, you know, the, I think the one thing with museums is that we kind of always practice social distancing, you know, around mm. the art and all of that. Sure. But we do have sort of hand sanitation stations throughout the space, um, suggested pathways through the exhibitions mm. to sort of mitigate people, you know, bumping into each other and being too close, mm. um, you know, so and we, you know, are requiring masks. Um, all of the employees we get you know, temp checked every day to make sure that people are healthy. So it's, you know, I, I think it's, I mean, I've been back in the office since May and I've, I've felt very um, safe in terms of mm -hmm. how they've been handling it um, and making sure that people are, are practicing all the proper protocols. Well, that's, that's nice to hear, not only for the visitors, but also for the staff that work there. It's great to know that you guys are feeling comfortable and safe as well in your working environment. Oh, for uh, sure. Aaron, just before we, we go, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Anything else you can think of that you feel is important to mention just before we finish up? Um, you know, I think it's just, I would love for people to have the opportunity to see it. And I know it's definitely a sort of these, you know, the phrase is this unprecedented moment in, mm. in our uh, collective history. Um, but, you know, the, the work these artists do 
um, it's just incredible. And uh, I, that's the, the one sadness of the timing of this show is that, you mm. know, it probably won't get the same attendance that, um, that it would normally have. Um, right. But just these artists are, are brilliant and, and having these amazing conversations about what's happening in the world. Um, you know, so I just hope that, that people have an opportunity to see it. And we had um, the opportunity to produce a, a catalog to accompany the book and just wonderful mm. scholars who have written so poignantly about uh, the work, about issues that are being dealt with in humanity. Um, we, the, and the, the title of the exhibition um, is taken from a poem called Grace by Joy Harjo, who's the 23rd U.S. Poet Laureate and is the first indigenous person to be a, a poet laureate in the United States. Mm. Um, and the, the, the title, Larger Than Memory, comes from the last line of um, her poem, where she says, we know that there is something larger than the memory of a dispossessed people, we have seen it. And I, it, we just thought that was such a beautiful way to, to, to talk about breaking those stereotypes and ending those reductive readings of indigeneity and, mm. and having this space for those conversations to happen. So, Wow, nicely said. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's Erin Joyce. She's the Fine Arts Curator at the Heard Museum in Phoenix, Arizona. We caught up with her in California today. We were talking with her not only about the museum, but also about the, uh, the, the latest uh, exhibition that opened up uh, just recently in September, Larger Than Memory, and it's contemporary art from Indigenous North America. And uh, you can find out more by going to their website at herd.org and find out all about the things we've been speaking with Aaron about today. And we want to thank you for listening to Moment of Truth here on Element FM each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you next time right here on Moment of Truth and Element FM. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.